Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. On this podcast, we tend to focus on the people and institutions controlling the levers of power in American politics and government. But every so often, an outside event breaks through in ways that add a new dimension to our own domestic political debates. Last Sunday, Italians went to the polls and voted in the most right-wing government since Benito Mussolini. The person they chose to lead that coalition, Giorgia Maloney. She will also be Italy's first female prime minister. We live in a time in which everything we stand for is under attack. Viewed by some as a potential template for U.S. conservatives to follow, Maloney has become a darling of sorts for many Republicans, who even invited her to speak at this year's CPAC conference. Our individual freedom is under attack. The sovereignty of our nation is under attack. The education of our children is under attack. Maloney's party, the Brothers of Italy, founded in 2012, was a fringe party with neo-fascist roots. It rebranded itself in recent years as a socially conservative, ultra-nationalist party, but still only won 4% in 2018. Maloney then became the singular face of opposition to the government in power, and her star rose. She ran on a platform that opposes LGBTQ rights, especially same-sex marriage, immigration, and abortion rights. And that's exactly what they want. A right wing on a leash, irrelevant, and trained as a monkey. But you know what? We are not monkeys. We are not even rhinos. We won't be part of their zoo. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. As it happens, I was actually in Italy this week. I was on vacation, visiting family, and I even got engaged while I was there. Two of my family members happen to be deeply involved in Italian politics. One is the mayor of a city in the south, and the other is a member of parliament, or at least she was until last Sunday when the Maloney wave swept her away. Despite Maloney's firebrand reputation, by the end of the campaign, she was sounding all of the right notes that the European and American establishment wanted to hear when it comes to Italy's place in the EU and its opposition to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But you couldn't help but wonder how real her rhetoric is. I consider it a kind of operation, operation reassurance. (laughs) It's really a kind of makeover because as recently as kind of the pandemic, she was complaining about the EU and saying pretty nationalist things and constantly voting against various EU initiatives within the parliament. Hannah Roberts is Politico's Rome correspondent. In the short time she had in between filing stories, I was able to catch up with her at a quiet rooftop cafe overlooking the Pantheon in central Rome. Unlike American populism, 
which favors the outsider and often inexperienced candidates, Hanna noted that Maloney is actually a career politician. Hanna recently wrote a fascinating profile, How Georgia Maloney Thinks, that dug deep into the candidate's roots as a teenage right-winger in one of Rome's most left-wing neighborhoods. Let's start where you start in the piece. You really dig deep into her time in the youth movements of right-wing Roman politics. I couldn't really think of an equivalent in American politics, but tell us a little bit about how this 15-year-old girl got into Italian politics. Yeah, it's also fascinating to me because this wasn't what I was like as a 15-year-old. Right, yes. Explain what you mean. (laughs) I guess uh, growing up in the, the UK under Tony Blair, we were living in a kind of era of centre-left, pre-9-11. We're at the end of history and uh, we weren't a very political generation. But in Italy, they were still living the sort of leftovers of the Red Brigades and the teenagers were much more political and I think still are. Almost everybody identified as either on the left or the right. Which is really interesting. In, in a lot of places, people don't even know what the left or the right is until they're much older. But she grew up in... One of the things that I found interesting was you identify a neighborhood in Rome that she grew up in, Carbatella, and it's associated with a political ideology. It's a left-wing neighborhood, which, you know, it's hard to think of the equivalent in, say, Washington, D.C. or New York, where you think of a neighborhood as left-wing. Now, Brooklyn, Cambridge, those are places that are progressive and have a point of view. But this seems different to me. It was the way you describe it is activist oriented, that if you were a young person in this neighborhood, you didn't just have a sort of socially progressive outlook the way in the United States we talk about places like Brooklyn or Cambridge. But you were engaged in uh, literally physical fights, (laughs) like gangs. I think that was part of the attraction for, um, I'm not sure about Maloney personally, but certainly a lot of her cohorts. These left-wing groups attracted young people who wanted to be um, activists. In the Italian word for them is militante, so it's a kind of soldier, you're dedicating your life to these groups, really. And on the left, they were mainly involved in occupations, so occupying schools, often in universities, pushing for social change. And on the right, often the aim was to kind of disrupt these occupations. Is there anything in the UK or the US that you would compare it to in the current political scene? I mean, the one thing that comes to mind is like Occupy Wall Street. You could certainly compare it to Occupy Wall Street. Similar to Occupy Wall Street, they didn't necessarily always have a very clear agenda, but were pushing for fairer wages, more spending for in education and schools. So she was in that milieu and she rebelled against it? Well, the education system was a kind of left-wing milieu. And so most of the students, both at schools and universities in Rome and elsewhere, aligned themselves with the left. So to align yourself with the right was really a rebellion already. And curiously, her father was a left-wing voter, but her father abandoned her when she was very young and sailed off to the Canary Islands. And so I think she even explains in her book that this could have played a part in her politics, whereas her mother came from a working class conservative background. Interesting. So instead of joining the left-wing groups, she joins what? So instead of joining a left-wing group, she signed up to what was called the Youth Front, 
which was like the youth movement for the Movimento Sociale Italiano, which was a post-fascist group that had been formed after the war by kind of remnants of the former fascists. You see, they were Italy, banned, and so this is what was replaced it because the, the the actual fascist party was illegal. That's right. Would you describe these groups as fascist back then? They certainly contained elements that were left over from fascism because Italy didn't quite have the reckoning with fascism that, say, Germany did. And so they yeah, aligned themselves with some of the fascist values, but their aims were not to have a kind of authoritarian dictatorship. They ditched that part of fascism. The American press coverage, I notice, is uh, filled with the F word describing Maloney. The groups that she came up in ditched these kind of toxic remnants of fascism. What was left for them that they were sort of proud of uh, in, in terms of, 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 the, of the fascist tradition? What was really left for them was patriotism, or rather nationalism, fanatical yeah. nationalism. And this was what really bonded Maloney's group together and has now evolved into modern day identity politics being able to have pride in being Italian. I found really interesting one detail when you're talking about her youth in this group, which is that they would go off into the woods and do these sort of retreats, and they really studied the opposition. They studied the old-time communists, and they would talk about Che Guevara, and you pointed out that I think one of her colleagues at the, from the time told you that they admired that generation of communists warning against indifference. In other words, it was really important to be politically active no matter what side you were on. Yeah, well, they probably had far more in common with the activists on the left than they did with indifferent, centrally politically minded students. It's hard to know how much this is Maloney and her cohort rewriting history. Some people I've spoken to who were part of the left-wing activist groups describe them as just a bunch of delinquents. <laughs> Got it. And that there's a little bit of like molding this history now into something, maybe something a little more. Uh... Exactly. Maloney likes to always say that she joined up because she felt so passionate about the killing of the right wing anti-mafia judge Paolo Borsellino. And it's interesting that it was Borsellino because Borsellino's slightly more famous colleague Falcone was considered to be on the left and she didn't join up after Falcone had been murdered. So there's some questioning of this history that is in her biography, her autobiography, right. and some of her longtime allies. Did she join up to fight the mafia or did she join up to be a rebel right. and because be part of this tribe that was occupying stuff and right. causing havoc in Rome? Because to be a rebel in that neighborhood was to join this right-wing group. And to have an identity. Yeah. She also said a lot of people who joined the group with her, they had difficult family life. And so they were searching for an identity and an alternative family. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting detail. And you write that at one point they were all told to do an exercise where they go through their phone book and contact people not in politics. And what happens? They realize that none of them have any friends who are not in politics. <laughs> and some of Maloney's friends told me that politics really took over their life, you know, romantic relationships, friendships. They would meet straight after school or university, so sort of three or four in the afternoon, then go to their club where they would talk politics and perhaps do some readings for each other. Then they'd go to a pizzeria, then they'd go to someone's house or out roaming around Rome. And just to get in here, I, I, this is an, a nice detail. The group was called the Seagulls, right? It, is, it does have a very um, West Side Story um, kind of feel to it. So 
How many of these people that Maloney met in the Seagulls as a teenage activist went on this 30-year journey with her and are still around her? She's 45 now. This all started when she was 15 years old. It obviously sounds, from your telling, like a very tight-knit group. It's actually bigger than you think. There seems to be about 100 of them who were all teenagers or in their 20s. That have stuck together through three decades of politics? Yeah, but they're not all in Rome, although it is quite a Rome-centric group because the Youth Front was a national organisation and so they would have opportunities to meet each other at camps and particularly at their annual festival, which was held in Rome. And so many of these people became friends around the country and are now mayors or local councillors in Maloney's party. Wow, so this was a real tight-knit network that was just on the fringes of politics for years and years and building from the grassroots. Yeah, while the Seagulls was the name of the local Rome group that Maloney was part of, this generation, they call themselves Generation Atreyu. It's the name of the hero of the never-ending story, which was one of their favorite books. Tell us a little bit about that, because you, that, there's been a lot of coverage of this the never-ending story. I remember the movie when I was a kid, great movie. There's also an obsession in this world with fantasy literature, with Tolkien and with Stephen King. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Tolkien seems to have been an icon of the far right going back to the 70s. And particularly in Italy, they had these hobbit camps where <laughs> these young right, uh, right-wing militants would go away and have political debate in a countryside setting. Wow, I mean, I thought CPAC was weird. That sounds really strange. Yeah, even a little bit fun. (laughs) Maloney has always quoted from this writing. I remember she quoted from Tolkien in her book. She says, when talking about identity politics and complaining that you can't insult LGBT people, she basically quotes Tolkien in Lord of the Rings explaining that blood will be shed over the right to defend the city of men. And that's her way of saying what? That's her way of saying that you've got to be able to call a spade a spade and it's important to defend that. And that's why she defends freedom of speech, even when it means being able to say that a woman is a woman, a mother and a father is better than two male fathers. It's her way of fighting back against cancel culture. Yeah. So that same set of issues that is roiling politics in the U.S. and and the U.K., it sounds almost identical in terms of the way it's playing out here and the way she talks about it. I mean, the phrase cancel culture is used here as well, huh? No, that phrase isn't actually used here. And I'd say that the issue is sort of in its infancy compared to the U.K. and the U.S. But it is a growing issue, and particularly with the Catholic Church here. For example, Maloney and other far-right politicians and the Catholic Church all allied themselves against a law that would have fought discrimination against LGBT and transgender people on freedom of speech grounds. So they wanted to defend the right of the church or right-wing people to say that there is such a thing as sex and gender is the same thing. Interesting. And they they were... They They successfully repelled that. One of the things this conversation raises in my mind is how different she is to the person, at least in American coverage, that she's often compared to, Donald Trump. She spent her life immersed in ideological warfare, and she's been thinking about politics and immersed in that world since she was a teenager. And 
since her early 30s, she's been in government and seen government up close and how coalition politics works in Italy. Very, very different than Trump, who <laughs> never been ideological and never had any experience in politics except as a donor until he ran for president. She first arrives on the scene as an actual minister at 31. Tell us a little bit about the progression over those 14 years since she started. What are the important moments along the way for her? Well, she got into parliament even younger than that, age 29, and was immediately made the deputy speaker of the house, so quite an important role. How did she get Ironically, <laughs> I think it was a case of the leader of her party, Feeney, wanted to have a woman in that place. And he thought it would look good to have a, a young, capable woman like Maloney. But she herself is absolutely against that kind of like promotion on gender basis. But she did benefit from it. And she always says, I'm a woman, but I've risen on merit. And by competing with the men, and it's not right to, for example, reserve places for female politicians because otherwise they'll never be respected. You have to get their own merit. You can't just get there because you're a woman. But he is, but the, the politician who chose her, his name is? Feeney. And he's said that it was because she was a woman that he wanted her, He wanted a female face on the party? I don't think he's ever said that I see. Uh, <laughs> openly. But She's that's, also benefited. But your report, your, so, so we know that how? We know that from your... Yeah, from, from conversations. And yeah. even earlier than that, when she was made a provincial councillor, or when she was selected to run as provincial councillor in her neighbourhood, Carbatella, her mentor, the person who chose her, said, I chose her because she's the sweet face of fascism. She's not a skinhead. And so she's perfectly placed to rebut that image of the hard right. Not that different from other hard right female politicians around Europe. Yeah, they put a friendly face on extremism. At a certain point... Berlusconi taps her to be the youth minister. Just looking at this from an outsider, it seems like over time what, what happened is that her party, which was sort of a, a fringe member of the center-right coalition, starts to push Forza Italia and others to the right and is the, the sort of intellectual engine of the right over the last decade. But tell us a little bit about how she comes to eclipse all the other leaders of the right. Uh, well, her party, Alianza Nazionale, merged with Berlusconi's party. But many of them were not really comfortable with that. Which side? The right-wingers were not really comfortable with that. So the, they weren't comfortable being part of Berlusconi's party because he's not really one of them. Also because his party ended up supporting the technocrat Mario Monti. And they very much pushed back against that. They were believed, perhaps surprisingly, that governments should express the democratic will of the people and that you shouldn't have governments parachuted in from Brussels. I suppose it's a strong nationalist argument. And she really broke away with several of the other right-wingers from Berlusconi's party at that time um, and in protest at their support of Mario Monti. From that point, yeah, they set up Brothers of Italy and at that point they were a very fringe, tiny party that gradually built themselves up to taking 4% in 2018. So just to get the dates here, they are founded in 2012, and in 2018, they get just over 4%. Exactly. They were pretty marginal there on the fringe. And so fast forward to the other day, 2022, September 25th, and they get 26%, the largest vote share. So what happens in that period, the last four years, that explains 
the change. The crucial thing was staying in opposition when all the other parties went into Mario Draghi's grand coalition. And for one thing, being in opposition in Italy guarantees you a certain amount of airtime on TV, on the state channels. Ah, well, that's very interesting. By law. Yeah, she's an excellent communicator and suddenly she's on TV every night and she's much more of a household name. Interesting. So she knows that staying in the opposition while all the other parties join this technocratic government is going to make her a star. Absolutely. And I'm sure that was part of the calculation. What she couldn't do anything about was whether her main rival on the right, Matteo Salvini in the league, joined this coalition. And he was really pushed into it by the business side of his party who wanted to make sure that they got their fair share of the post-pandemic economic recovery plan, which Italy is a beneficiary of. Just to pause on that for a second and just give us a quick thumbnail sketch of this complicated coalition. So we've talked a lot about Maloney, but you just mentioned Salvini and the League. The League used to be a, a separatist party, wanted to separate the North from what they considered the sort of lazy South, the sort of I assume inherently racist uh, party. It was behind the sort of separatist movement, right? And they ditched the separatist part of the platform. And they moved to the right and occupied the space that really should have been Maloney's space with a lot of nationalist talk, with a lot of uh, anti-immigration talk. And when they, the League went into government in 2018 in a strange and messy coalition with the Five Star Movement, they really focused on immigration, and this was a very popular theme for them, but it wasn't the League's natural home, which had been about Northern autonomy and independence. What is the relationship between Maloney and Salvini now? There's a lot of talk that this coalition is fragile because there are fissures between Berlusconi, Salvini, and Maloney. Yes, they've won, but now the hard work begins because I would say the relationship is characterized by intense rivalry, jealousy, and suspicion. So doesn't sound like Italian politics at all. <laughs> the right are a pragmatic in general worldwide, and so they managed to get their act together and unite for these elections. But there's always intense jealousy, particularly between Meloni and Salvini, who run on quite similar platforms. Then you've got Silvio Berlusconi, who differentiates himself by being more pro-European. He's in the EPP grouping in the European Parliament, which is much more moderate. And he portrays himself as kind of the guarantor that Italy will stay closely aligned with NATO and the EU. Just to stop you there, how do we square that with Berlusconi's more pro-Putin views? He's not the most consistent person in the world. Is it that simple? With Putin, it's personal. <laughs> They're just rich, kind of oligarch-like buddies kind of thing. Exactly. <laughs> and... Um, but I think, no, Berlusconi is also a big pragmatist and he won prime minister, in the, especially in the 2000s, as Russia had become a sort of democracy, realised that Russia was very useful to Italy and built up a personal relationship with Putin, partly based on shared economic interests. Got it. And this partly re reflected a kind of long-term Italian foreign policy view that it was better to be friends with autocracies and uh, reflected also that Italy's Communist Party's long, long ties with the Soviet Union's Communist Party. Got it. But we shouldn't confuse his personal affinity for Putin with him being the leading Eurosceptic in this threesome. 
that is Salvini. But, you know, Maloney until two years ago was also saying a lot of anti-European things. Maloney, by the end of the campaign, was sounding all of the right notes as far as the European establishment is concerned. How real is that? I consider it a kind of operation, like operation reassurance. <laughs> it's really a kind of makeover because as recently as kind of the pandemic, she was complaining about the EU and saying pretty nationalist things and constantly voting against various EU initiatives within the parliament. But once the elections moved into sight and once she started to rise in the polls, she's been trying to appeal to more moderate voters. The most significant things are in 2019, her party joined the ECR group in the European Parliament, the European Conservatives and Reformists, which is on the right, but it's definitely not the kind of extremist, hardcore Eurosceptics like Marine Le Pen and Germany's AFD, which are in the Identity and Democracy group, so. Okay, interesting. And she had a choice. She could have been in the Le Pen group. Yeah, and the second thing she did was, as soon as the conflict in Ukraine broke out, was to align herself with NATO and Mario Draghi, who was in government's very pro-NATO line. And she hasn't, she hasn't shied away from that. And that... she always voted in favor of sanctions. She criticized Putin. She called him out as the invader. And so that's a difference between her and Salvini. Yeah, Salvini and Berlusconi were both a bit more ambiguous. For, I mean, Salvini has even been involved in some peace initiatives and has often called for sanctions to be reviewed. And Berlusconi has just been, I think, reluctant to criticize an old friend or perhaps to look stupid for having trusted someone. So, so you're a skeptic background, but from the US and, and Europe's view, in the right place on NATO and the war in Ukraine. And then, of course, plenty of people argue that she'll be hemmed in because of the billions in, in euros that are flowing to Italy from the EU. And there's an argument that I, I hear a lot of Italian analysts make that that means she may focus more on domestic politics. Her right-wing agenda will probably focus much more on domestic politics. Internationally, she's hemmed in, as you say, by the recovery plan, but also Italy's very high public debt. Because as soon as the bond markets, the investors get a little bit worried about Italy's international alliances, whether it's NATO or primarily the EU, the cost of borrowing becomes unsustainable. And then any government, populist or otherwise, has no money to enact any of their policies. This is what happened with the Five Star Movement, I assume? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. There were so, some really tricky moments for them with, with the budget. All right, so what does that mean then, if, if, we, if we take that as, as, as likely on the international scene, what does that mean for her domestic agenda? With her domestic agenda, she'll have a lot more freedom to enact some of her identity politics, which I think she will feel that she needs to do in order to show people why they voted for her. Now, it's very unlikely that she would ban abortion. Because, because she needs a two-thirds majority in the parliament or just because it's so unpopular to do that? It would be very unpopular. There isn't will in Italy to do that. But because her party already controls healthcare in the regions where they control, because healthcare is devolved to the regions, yeah. we can already see how they've been making small attacks on abortion. For example, they ignore government guidelines that you're supposed to make the um, pharmaceutical abortion available in day centers. So women have to go into hospital for at least three days 
and that's obviously more difficult for a lot of women who work or have families. They also have been in areas where the right control abortion, putting in initiatives to pay women to change their mind. So at the local level, the party's anti-abortion view is similar to the United States. They've really implemented that. They're using the U.S. playbook, I believe. She'll also want to domestically look at uh, what she can do on immigration. She's been calling for a naval blockade, but I think now understands that that would be against international law and unrealistic, and it involves kind of doing deals with Libya, things that would be very difficult with a country that's still at war. So domestically, she might bring in some of the things that Salvini did when he was interim minister, which, for example, bringing in more stringent regulations about who is entitled to international protection and welfare benefits, closing some of the camps where integration activity is taking place for migrants. Very similar to Trump in the US. The naval blockade sounds like the equivalent of building the wall, but there were plenty of other actual policies that Trump implemented to make it harder for asylum seekers and other. Exactly. I think she's dissimilar for Trump for the reasons that you mentioned. Like she's a very agile communicator, but in some ways they're similar because she also manages to create this kind of image of authenticity of the people. She's often in all her rallies speaks out against the elites, the kind of centre-left elites who are sipping wine at their beach houses. She's adopted all of that rhetoric that we've seen in American politics on the right for a long, long time. Yeah, and effectively bringing some of the kind of working class, former left-wing voters over to her camp. Anna, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I know you're on deadline for another uh, piece, so let you get out of here. But thank you very much for helping us understand her. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Adam Ellington is senior producer. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of Audio at Politico. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of Audio at Politico. Mike DeBonis is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. 